be called to the set in just a moment. Set. Away, Freeman out well, a mighty roar surrounds the stadium. Hogan Boyer wide sailing, Freeman, they're holding their stagger early. Graham's gone out strongly in the back straight, she's in the middle. So down the back, Cathy three from the left. Graham's gone out really hard to Guevara. Freeman going strongly up to almost halfway. She's three from the top. You can see Graham inside of her, probably in front. Mary's having a good run. This is where Cathy exploded in Atlanta. Graham's in front of her. Freeman's got work to do here. There's about 150 to go. Guevara and Mary are right up. It's going to be a big finish. Into the slate, Graham leads. Freeman runs up to her. Mary inside. Cathy lifting. Goes up to Graham. Takes the lead. Looks a winner. Draws away from Graham and Mary. This is a famous victory. A magnificent performance. What a legend. What a champion. What a champion indeed. I welcome to this uh, edition of the Rookie and Verger podcast. Uh, a bit of a different uh, intro. We, uh, we stacked your level walk alone for this week. And instead, we uh, had Bruce McAvaney's call of uh, the Cathy Freeman gold medal, which occurred 20 years ago today. So we thought we'd uh, celebrate that by having a little chat about uh, that night and, uh, and other Cathy Freeman moments, but also moving on to sort of talking about uh, performing under stress and so on. So, uh, Darren Burgess, welcome. Uh, it's not often that... Um... Yeah, you, I, I know that you wouldn't give you work at, you'll never walk alone sort of uh, the miss for an episode, Brookie, because you love it. But uh, in this case, it's completely understandable. Uh, Twenty yeah. years, it's uh, it's it's quite amazing because uh, everybody in Australia, anyway, can still remember where they were in that event. And and I think what makes it special, uh, and you'll know this way more than me, is. Uh, probably people around the world might be thinking, well, it's just a gold medal. We've all won plenty of them, as in their countries have won. Um, but I'm not sure anybody has actually lit the flame before the event <laughs> and before the games and then turned around and, and won. I, that's what makes it probably, well, comfortably in my lifetime anyway, the most, uh, uh, I guess, the biggest win under pressure that I can recall anyway. And, and there's different types of pressure we'll talk about a bit later on. There's life pressure and things like that. Um, but my goodness, she was under enormous pressure, and, and we're a bit privileged here to to actually have a bit of a chat with you about it, because obviously, as we've alluded to in one of the earlier episodes, um, that you were there at, uh, on the on the night and played a pivotal role in it. Well, I'm not sure about the pivotal role, but uh, well, I was just a, pumping you up a bit. You were there. <laughs> okay, yeah, let's leave it at that, shall we? I was I was there, but um, yeah. yeah. The thing that I, I probably want to start with, Brookie, and. I was only uh, I was only sort of made aware of this probably a week ago, um, and there's obviously been a bit on social media about you know where everybody was on this event, and um, because it's such a big thing here in Australia, um, I had no idea. In 1996, um, I, there's some footage around. If if people want to Google Kathy Freeman and Stall Gift, uh, S T A W E W L Gift, which is one of the richest amateur rates in the races in the world, isn't it, Brookie? And and it's um, a yeah, it's run, uh, run on a grass track at a uh, little town called Stall and a country town in, in Victoria. But it's just been this incredible tradition. Every Easter, uh, all the best athletes in the country uh, head to Stall. It used to be very much professional, uh, you know, in the days when it was professional and amateur. But that sort of uh, has got blurred in the last uh, sort of twenty years, and now. All our best so-called amateur or Olympic athletes also competed at, uh, at stall. 
Yeah, and, and uh, I'm not sure you'll know the exact... Ha- it's a handicapped race, and the handicap that Cathy was under, and I call her Cathy like she's my best mate, but Cathy Freeman was under. <laughs> um, it's just extraordinary vision of her catching up and overthinking at the line and getting elbowed as she was running past one of the girls um, yeah. competing. Uh, do you know much about that event or anything like that? Well, there was, I mean, there was a lot of discussion as to whether she would uh, she would run the event because obviously it was uh, three or four months before the Atlanta Olympics. Um, but uh, you know, I think they she thought it would be a bit of uh, a bit of fun, and obviously there was a lot of uh, prestige to the to the event of having Kathy uh, Kathy run. And uh, yeah, her handicap. I mean, she was something like fifty six meters or something like. And uh, behind the next runner, and uh, and just mowed them down. Amazing uh, footage that they showed on the recent uh, documentary that screened in Australia on uh, on Kathy Freeman. But that was part of her part of her build up to um, Atlanta, and um, Atlanta was uh, was really her sort of coming of age. She'd she'd had a uh, a disappointing World Championships in in 1995 when everyone thought she'd probably medal and and didn't and um, and she learned a lot I think from uh, from that and uh, coming into to uh, Atlanta um, she was running pretty well uh, there was an overwhelming favourite Marie Jose Perec the great uh, the great French runner and uh, she was clearly the best uh, runner in the field and uh, there was a bunch of of others competing really for uh, for the for the minor uh, the minor placings and um, on uh, on the night in in uh, Atlanta it was a a fantastic race the the four hundred uh, and uh, Perec indeed did win um, and later went on to win the two hundred as well which is an incredible double the the two hundred and four hundred is very rarely uh, rarely done and um, and Kathy came second um, and in her she had a, a massive PB, a massive personal best, and in fact, it was the fastest time she ever ran in her career. It was when she came uh, second uh, in Atlanta, and uh, you know she was uh, obviously delighted, and everyone I think was was pleased. No one realistically thought she had a chance of winning gold, but to win silver was was fantastic. I was the uh, I was the athletics team doctor in, in Atlanta, and also the assistant team manager, and. Uh, one of my roles was to uh, to look at the athletes after they finished and uh, sort of shepherd them through the all the uh, the media and uh, and drug testing and, and all that sort of so for the the hour or two after they uh, they finished. So uh, I duly met Kathy after she uh, finished and she was obviously uh, pretty happy and uh, everything was good. And then after we'd done uh, media and 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 so on, the the officials came up to us and said, uh, "Now, um, uh, Miss Freeman, it's time for the." Uh, the, uh, pres- the victory ceremony and um, you know come downstairs we've got a, a room downstairs you can uh, get yourself uh, tidy yourself up and get yourself ready and uh, and the ceremony will uh, I'll start in 10 minutes and uh, as probably those of you who Olympics would know that uh, you receive your gold medal in your team tracksuit you never receive it in your in your uh, competitive gear competition gear you have to have your tra- team tracksuit so uh, I uh, I said to Kathy, uh, okay, well let's let's get your tracksuit uh, on and, and get down there and uh, and we'll get going. And she looked up at me with her big brown eyes and she said, Doc. I said, what do you want? Uh, what's happening, Kath? She said, Oh, Doc, I haven't got my tracksuit. And I said, No, there's no time for jokes now, you know, because everyone knew that was the, the rules and so on. I said, No time for laughing and joking now, Kathy. You know, let's get going. She said, Doc, I haven't got my tracksuit. I didn't think I'd win a medal. I thought, oh, gosh, you know, she'd be the only person in the whole country who didn't think she'd win a medal. Didn't think she'd win something. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, and the rule is no tracksuit, no medal ceremony. Oh, really? And, uh, yeah, absolutely. They're, they're quite strict on that. 
So, um, so my whole sort of you know, sports uh, medicine career sort of uh, flashed in front of me at that moment. I basically had 10 minutes to find Kathy Freeman at tracksuit because the whole country was sort of waiting, you know, to, to see her get her get her medal, and uh, it was great excitement there. And uh, Kevin Gosper was going to uh, going to present it. Of and, course, uh, yes. That was a, of course, that was a big uh, a big deal. And uh, and I thought, geez, you know, I'm in trouble here. It was it was really hot, like it was, you know mid 30s and humidity of about 98%. And so no one had their tracksuits on or, or with them and so on. So I said to Kathy, you go downstairs, I'll see what I can do. So I raced up to where the uh, Australians were all sitting in the in the grandstand. And I've, I've yelled out across all these sort of uh, Americans who gave me these strange looks, you know, has anyone got their tracksuit? And um, and uh, one of the girls, Caroline Swallow, uh, said, "Yeah, I've got my tracksuit top in my in my backpack." And I thought, "Oh my god, that's a bit weird." But anyway, she, and she promptly threw that over to me. And I said, uh, and I looked around, and no one else was. Uh, and I said, I yelled out again, you know, over these uh, these Americans who thought, "Who's this crazy Australian?" You know, Has anyone got any tracksuit pants? And and not blank looks. And then I saw uh, Debbie Flintoff King sitting there. Debbie, uh, as most people would know. 1988 gold medalist in the, yes. in the 400 hurdles, great uh, Australian Olympian, and uh, she was among us. Her husband Phil actually was uh, was the head coach. She was my my roommate, and um, uh, Debbie was sitting there with her tracksuit pants on. Uh. And I thought, uh, so I called out, Deb, Deb, and I uh, said, "What have you got under on under your tracksuit pants?" And these Americans are really thinking this. Yeah, these yeah. Australians. And she yelled back, just my knickers. And I said, he needs them. And uh, Deb realised the uh, seriousness of the situation and promptly uh, took off her tracksuit pants, threw them over to me. I ran down the stairs, got to, got to the uh, the room just as I was about to, uh, to walk out. So uh, we put Debbie Flintoff King's tracksuit pants and Carolyn Swallow's tracksuit top on, uh, on Kathy. And out she walked uh, to the stadium, to the uh, the victory ceremony, and no one was any the wiser. And uh, it all went uh, all went very smoothly, which was all fine until everyone had to stand for the French national anthem, and poor old Debbie Flintoff King had to stand, get up and stand. Had to stand with her, you know. I'm sure her husband uh, was most impressed. Yeah, uh, Debbie still talks to me occasionally, but uh, yeah. no, that's uh, that's fine. So, so uh, interestingly enough, uh, from that moment on, at every major meet, so uh, Commonwealth Games, World Championships, and so on. Um, Kathy uh, refused to bring a tracksuit because she, oh, really? you know, she didn't want to change. It was her good luck charm not bring a tracksuit. So the first job of, uh, of the, uh, the team manager at any uh, event was to uh, make sure you had Kathy Freeman's tracksuit uh, in, your, uh, in your bag. So uh, we certainly did that for, uh, for Sydney and, uh, you know, once bitten, twice shy. So uh, that, was, uh, that was my first experience of Kathy on the, Kathy. On the podium. So that was, uh, was pretty weird. But, um, and, and sort of going further into that, um, you remained after Atlanta, obviously, you know, everybody knew the Olympics were in Sydney. It's been very exciting. She's our best chance. We're not particularly successful. I know you being an avid athletics person will disagree, but as a as someone who doesn't follow it as much as you, we're not a particularly successful athletics nation. But she was she was our uh, and she went through undefeated from Atlanta all the way through to Sydney. Yeah, yeah, I think she might have lost one race when she had a sore foot or something like that. But uh, yeah, basically, uh, 
undefeated. She uh, the the year after at Atlanta, I seem to remember she didn't have a great year to be honest. Um, but uh, she won the uh, she somehow still managed to guts it out and win the world titles in, in Athens that year with that uh, incredibly short haircut that uh, some people might uh, yes. might remember that, uh, that shocked everyone a little bit. But um, um, she uh, she then was. Uh, injured for the 1998 uh, Commonwealth Games in uh, in Kuala Lumpur, um, and but then came out and won the uh, the World Champs in um, in Gothenburg in, in uh, no where were they in 99 in Seville in 1999, um, and so yes yeah, she was certainly uh, the favourite going in. The big uh, unknown, of course, was uh, Marie Jose Perec, yes. who had uh, not competed very much in that time but uh, had said that she would be competing at uh, in Sydney and uh, there was a lot of conjecture about, uh, about what sort of shape she was in and whether she'd be competitive. Uh, Kathy always sort of assumed that uh, Perec would be running. Um, that was her you know uh, default. She said no I'm, uh, I'm expecting her to be there. Um, and uh, some people might remember that there was a huge uh, fuss. Perec arrived in, uh, in Sydney um, and there was a huge sort of uh, fuss at the airport and people chasing her everywhere. Absolutely. And she, didn't have, she didn't have bodyguards or didn't have anyone sort of looking after her. She just sort of ran herself uh, to, a, to a cab and <laughs> it was sort of quite a circus. Um, and then she, uh, she was driven to a hotel in Sydney and... Uh, um, and uh, she stayed for uh, for a few days in in Sydney, and then uh, and then just as quickly as she'd uh, she'd arrived, she departed, and she just literally uh, jumped on a plane home and said that uh, she'd been harassed, and uh, you know the whole country was uh, was against her, and uh, and so on. And and Kathy actually came out at a press conference and said, "I hope that you know you're treating her her well." Kathy uh, certainly didn't uh, didn't hold anything against Perec. In fact, uh, they were they were quite friendly, and uh, and she admired her a lot. But um, so that that really was uh, part of the whole the whole circus. But as you said, uh, Darren, the build up for the games was just incredible with uh, in relation to to Kathy. I mean. Uh, you know, I, I've said this before, but I, I'm a bit of a student of Olympic history and, and I'm absolutely certain that there's never been anyone in the history of the Olympics who's been under as much pressure and as much expectation as, as Cathy Freeman. I mean, she was, the, as you said, she was the sort of face of the game. She was our realistic medal hope in the major event of the uh, of the Games athletics. Um, and, you know, she was, she was female. She was Indigenous. She sort of ticked every... Really, and uh, and there was it was all about you know Freeman Night. Everyone was talking about well, you know, what are your plans for Freeman Night, or you know, and tickets were just like gold, and uh, everyone was having barbecues and Freeman parties and and things like that, and uh, so it was immense pressure. And then in case there was someone in you know in the country who didn't know about it, they 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 got her to light the flame, you know, which I think was an inspired choice of, of John Coates, I have to say. Um, but T tell uh, me about that, Brookie, because we'll we'll get on to you know, some of the stories around pressure and things like that. Um, who, how did that get decided? Who decided? I don't know if you know the answer to this. I certainly don't. Um, no, but... it was it was a decision by John Coates, who's the, uh, the head of the Australian uh, Olympic Committee. And um, it, it traditionally was... Um, was not someone who was competing in those, in those yes. games. Um, so there was lots of talk about it. it would be, uh, you know, the people like Dawn Fraser and, and Herbie Elliott and, and all these sort of uh, legends of, uh, of the past. But um, John Coates, who's always got a pretty good feel for these things, he decided, uh, and obviously I'm sure he took advice from others, but, uh, and, and I know he had to convince 
the uh, the head of uh, SOCOG as it was uh, it was then that this was the right uh, decision. But um, he uh, he's a very persuasive man, John, and 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 he made that decision and uh, and. Uh, I think had a dinner with Kathy about uh, or some months beforehand, eight months maybe before uh, before the games, in which he uh, he broached the uh, the subject, and and her reaction, of course, was you know well no you know why me you know I'm surely there are more important people. Uh, uh, I think it was an inspired uh, decision, and I think in the end, you know, I think everyone pretty much agreed that it was the right uh, the right person. They managed to keep it a secret. I mean, that was incredible how they uh, how they did that. Um, you know, very few people uh, knew. Um, now, I was the manager of the track and field team, so you know, it shows how important I was in the chain. I had no, <laughs> I didn't know. Um, and um, so, very few people knew. Kathy had actually done a uh, rehearsal at midnight the night before. Um, and no one else was in the stadium. You know, they cleared the stadium. She had to actually wait out half an hour. The only person she saw in the stadium was Debbie Flintoff King, who was the person who passed her the uh, the torch as the as the sort of the last runner, if you like. Um, so she knew that. You know, Kathy knew that Debbie was doing it, and Debbie knew what Kathy was doing it. But virtually no one else uh, did. And. Um, so to, to confuse people even more, they got Kathy to uh, to march into the stadium as a normal member of our team. Yeah, so we were all yeah. sort of, we'd, we'd all assembled in the uh, in the basketball stadium next door prior to going in, and and you know we had a few people on Kathy watch, and people say, no, no, she's there, she's there, you know, and and so basically we'd all decided that she couldn't possibly be doing it because she was marching in uh, with us, and she marched in the whole way, and uh, we all sort of assembled on the. Uh, on the inside of the uh, the stadium there to uh, await the the ceremony, and uh, just at that time she snuck off uh, to the side and uh, was sort of whisked away and uh, and changed. A few people saw it, but uh, we uh, and the sort of word went around. Kathy's gone. Kathy's gone. But uh, there was a only among uh, among the members of the team, and really they did an amazing job at uh, at keeping her uh, keeping her, the identity secret. And then, of course, you know, the moment came, and uh, I think it was it was fantastic the way they, they lit the flame. There was that little hiccup when the uh, yep. the, the lift the, the lift sort of stalled, and uh, we were all sitting there saying, you know, come on, come on, hurry up, hurry up. And poor he was standing there, freezing cold, wet because of the uh, of the water around her. Um, and uh, fortunately, while she was sitting watching the uh, yeah, things, uh, the the flame ascending, uh, someone had to set find a, a tracksuit top and put it around her and. Uh, um, keep her warm because uh, you know that would have been a disaster if she caught a cold on the night of the opening ceremony. But uh, it, and obviously that was distracting for her. Um, she had a very late night. It was a week before she competed, so it wasn't uh, wasn't too bad. But uh, it was a risk. Um, but a risk that everyone thought was uh, was worth taking. And uh, as I said, in the end, I, I don't think there was anyone who thought that wasn't uh, the right the right person. Sure. And she did she did a wonderful job. She looked amazing in that uh, that white suit. That, uh, sure. Yeah, it was a lovely, a lovely night. And so, if we can go to the sort of the theme of of a bit of pressure, what um, beforehand we spoke about this in in an earlier podcast, but beforehand, how did you get? And I watched that documentary, and without you know giving too much away to people who haven't seen it, she the the effect of pressure on her was quite remarkable. Um, and her reaction to it, and, and we can talk about perhaps some other pressure situations that you, you and I have seen from, you know, from a, a relative distance. But 
beforehand, uh, she said she didn't hear a thing when they announced, announced that it was Kathy Freeman, and there was no reaction to her at all. You know, other athletes wave when on the starting box, but she just did not react. And she said in that documentary, she only heard one thing in that pregame, and that was a gentleman yelling out just as she was walking out, saying, "Come on, Kathy, you can do it." And it was a nondescript gentleman; it was no one that was, you know, that she knew. Um, but after that, she said, "I didn't hear a thing." Yeah, I think she had this amazing ability to uh, to block things out, and and she did that a lot. I mean, a lot of people thought, "Oh, Kathy's a bit, you know, vague and a bit, you know, not uh, not that with it." But that was uh, that was her way of, of blocking out all the outside uh, stuff that was going on, and there was a lot going on uh, in the in the months and weeks leading up to it. And 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 she had that same ability on uh, on race day, and uh, she was remarkably calm. Given the uh, given the circumstances, I mean, uh, you know, it's it's hard to imagine that she wouldn't have felt just sick with with nerves and uh, expectation and so on. But uh, she appeared to you know to to those of us who were there, you know, involved. I mean, in, incredibly calm. Um, she just retreats into herself. Uh, she doesn't really want other people around her. Um, she doesn't. Uh, Nobody wishes her good luck in her team because it's nothing to do with luck. Um, so uh, the words "good luck" are not used by, were never used by Team Freeman, um, which is you know absolutely appropriate, I think, um, because you know you don't really need luck in a four hundred meter race. You just need to perform at your at your best. Um, so uh, there were there were lots of you know lots of things that they prepared for, and, and obviously they prepared very well. You know her. Uh, her coach and her psychologist and, and you know lots of other people were involved. Um, Chris Wardlaw, the head coach of the, of the athletics team, was a was a wonderful influence on Kathy and uh, and Peter and her, her coach. You know was uh, was far more nervous than Kathy. <laughs> he was a nervous wreck, but uh, he didn't uh, he didn't show that uh, too much. But yeah, she she just had this great knack of being able to switch off, and uh, that really held her in in good stead. Just not only on race day, but leading leading up to it. And um, and when you say great, knack, of course, you, uh, you know. Yeah. Sorry. Uh, what, I when don't you know, say great knack, did you see it before? Has yeah. she trained it? Hey. Uh, how, what does this knack sort of consist yeah, of? Yeah. Well, yeah. That's it's a good question. You know, I think it's just something that uh, that she she learned along the way. She developed it, um, and uh, she realised, I think, and and, and with advice. Uh, uh, that that was the only way she was going to uh, go to cope and, and to get through it. I know she had, you know, obviously Nick Badeau, her original coach and, yes. uh, and manager, was was a massive influence uh, on on her and taught her a lot about coping with uh, with pressure and uh, so on. So, uh, yeah, I'm not sure really where where it sort of came from, um, but uh, she was she's a very calm person and uh, I think she just had this wonderful in a sort of piece that uh, enabled her to uh, to focus on, on these events. Quite uh, quite remarkable. And, and as I said, I, I don't think there's too many other people who would have coped with that. Uh, well, I know there's very few other people who would have coped with that pressure. Um, and then it, it, one interesting thing was her decision to um, to wear the suit. And yes. uh, obviously Nike, her sponsors, had been uh, talking to her some time and she'd uh, tried it again in, in secret uh, a couple of times. She actually wore a suit once in a race in, in the UK in a low-key, low-ish key race. She wore a white suit 
um, because she really wanted to try it out once. But no one sort of put two and together really that uh, that she might do that uh, in the Olympics. And again, as you know, as the team uh, the team manager, you'd think I'd be right up with all that and knew all about that. I had no idea as well. So again, that shows you how important I was in the uh, <laughs> in the scheme of things. But um, yeah, it was a real one of those moments when she took off her uh, her gear and, and there was the suit. There was this gasp, you know, in the stadium and. Uh, Wow, you know, it, and it just made her look so powerful, I thought. Didn't so, it? Uh, yeah, 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 it did. So, and you can imagine, you know, I mean, a lot of it, she'd beaten all those runners. None of them had ever beaten, really. And, and so, you know, it, she had this psychological edge over it, and she knew it. You know, she knew that uh, in the last 50 metres, she was going to be able to outrun all these, uh, all these athletes. And I just think it just, again, was a little bit intimidating. Um, she certainly felt that uh, that she ran better in the suit. She felt she sort of cut through the air uh, better. She uh, she commented a few times, um, but a gutsy decision to uh, to wear that suit, particularly as she was someone who who doesn't like uh, you know attention on herself uh, so much. Um, but uh, yeah, great decision, and obviously uh, it was a great moment. And uh, it's a classic photos of her uh, her running in that uh, in that suit. So uh, no, very special. Um, the race was plan uh, was was an interesting one to get to get a bit more technical and someone who yeah. you know I haven't, uh, I haven't worked much in athletics but she revealed her race plan which was and this is what I doc because you and I have spoken many times about sometimes how we as sports medicine people uh, as coaches um, can overcomplicate things yeah and do you want to go through because I'll get it wrong what her entire race plan for the most <laughs> Uh, prestigious event of her life and in Australian sport history, really. Yeah. Well, yeah, look, as you said, it was very, very simple. It was something like, you know, uh, go out hard for the first 50, you know, steady down the uh, down the back straight and, and then go when you get to the 200, you know. And, um, yeah, it was, go, it was go out fast and it was fast, relaxed. Fast, relaxed, and then yep. With yep. The, after the curve, after it was go the, all out. Yep. Yeah, at the water. That was go, it. Off you it go. was written on a yep. bit of paper. Yep. Yep, and that, uh, and and she'd, uh, you know, previously the only bad race, well, one of the very few race, bad races she ran was uh, was in uh, the, the ninety five World Championships when she went out too hard, and uh, and so she was very conscious of the fact that uh, she needed to, uh, you know, just just uh, at hard for a little while and then just get into a relaxed state down the down the back straight because uh, that really that was the only way she was going to lose the race. You know, if, if she if she went out too hard or made a tactical blunder and didn't time her race right, because on, on all other sort of uh, parameters, she was going to win that uh, that race. So okay. uh, that was was very important. But uh, yeah, as you say, very simple. Uh, that was all that her, her coach really talked to her about. Um, and really, that's 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 all it is. I mean, you can overcomplicate things, but that uh, that was her that was what she needed to do, and uh, and she carried it out to, to the letter. And uh, yeah, it was very. And afterwards, it was an uh, the, the reaction afterwards, before we get on to some other sort of more general pressure yeah, um, yeah, look, scenarios, I, her immediate reaction, what do you make of that? Yeah, that was really interesting, wasn't it? I mean, when you know, most people when they win Olympic gold medal, you know, they uh, they you know jump around and prance around and kiss the ground and you know carry on like <laughs> like Usain Bolt and uh, all that sort of uh, stuff, you know, and and surrounded by a horde of photographers and so on. But uh, Kathy, uh, Kathy just sat down on the track, 
and uh, sent uh, there for what seemed like you know ages, at least probably a minute. But uh, you know, seemed to us sit on the stand. I was standing there with Chris Wardlaw, the, the head coach, and we all we were saying, "Come on, Kathy, you know, come on, come on, Kathy, you know, get up, get up." And uh, seemed to be for ages. But um, yeah, I think she was just trying to contemplate what she'd just done and what had happened, and and a sense of relief and. Uh, it very interesting. I mean, she did, you know, then go on a victory lap, and and then uh, it was a wonderful moment when she she saw her her family in the crowd. I mean, it's amazing. Like there's hundred thousand people there, and she she didn't know where they were, but she just saw her uh, her family in the crowd, and they came and they uh, they celebrated together, which was quite quite remarkable, really. Um, and I uh, I was fortunate again as part of my role was was to spend uh, was to look after the athletes when they finished so I was really Kathy's minder for the next uh, three hours after after she finished and uh, we went through sort of all the media scrum and, and everything like that and and it was interesting in that three hours she never once said to me oh doc I'm happy oh you know this is what I, all everything I've dreamed of this is amazing how fan she must have said to me twenty times doc I'm just so relieved doc it's just such a relief. And that was the overwhelming that. emotion that, that she had at that time. And, uh, you know, I'm sure since, and, 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 you know, many times after, she's had that feeling of elation and, and incredible pride and, and so on. But at the time, it was just relief. Oh, thank God I haven't screwed this up, you know, and uh, let everyone down and so on. So very interesting. that, uh, And I think that happens a lot, that people are, uh, you know, and it's a bit sad in a way that you can't uh, enjoy your success. You've just so relieved uh, that you haven't, failed but uh, i'm sure you know there since then she's had a lot of enjoyment out of it but uh it was very interesting that uh that was her overwhelming emotion and uh, and we had a you know an amazing uh few hours you know we uh we did all the media interviews and i took her up to to be interviewed by bruce up in the way up in the in the uh, the top of the stand and then uh, and then they arranged for her family to come into a room and uh, she spent time with her her family which was pretty nice and uh, then we went down to drug testing and uh, you know i just and very interestingly um she'd had a uh, quite a sort of a, an unpleasant breakup with with nick Badeau, uh, both personally and professionally and uh, they hadn't spoken for uh, for months and uh, Nick was uh, right, yeah. actually had a new partner, Sonia O'Sullivan, uh, the Irish runner. And Sonia, on the same night, had uh, had medalled in the uh, in the five thousand metres. And uh, they actually passed each other in the corridor outside. Drug testing. I don't know. Nick, Nick, and Nick, Kathy. Yeah, or, yeah Nick and okay. Kathy. Yeah. And I don't know how Nick got in there. Nick's amazing. <laughs> he always finds his way to mm -hmm. these places. Uh, he was. Uh, his husband, I don't think he had any other official role in there. But anyway, Nick was there, as is his want. And uh, and I remember thinking, oh, this is going to be interesting. And uh, and they basically sort of, they saw each other. Um, and uh, I think they both wanted to say something, but they didn't. And I know, I know Kathy regrets that, and, and I'm sure Nick regrets it. Because even though, you know, they'd, they'd had a breakup and they both had new partners and, and, and so on, I mean... I think Kathy would be the first to say she wouldn't have got to where she got to without Nick sure. Uh And Nick, sure. you know, for all his, you know, he's fairly controlling and, and so on, but it's probably what Kathy needed. And uh, I just felt a bit sad that they couldn't, you know, acknowledge each other and, and share the, uh, the the triumph because it was partly Nick's as well, even though, uh, you know, he wasn't a part of Team Freeman at that, uh, that stage. But, uh, yeah, that was an interesting uh, moment. And then we were, I remember sitting in drug testing and, uh, you know, and we're just, just talking about, you know, where we're going to go on holiday or some, something, you know, mundane. And, and I remember thinking this is the most bizarre situation I've ever been in. You know, the whole country is going, 
absolutely bananas about Kathy Freeman and you know people are celebrating and kissing and hugging and and, and everything and and here am I sitting sitting with this uh, this you know lovely young lady uh, talking about where we where we're going to go on our holidays so just very bizarre I actually had the gold medal in my pocket for a couple of hours and uh, I eventually decided I'd probably better give it back and um, so, you better yeah um, exactly yeah exactly Larry Kathy she probably wouldn't even have noticed her for a while anyway. <laughs> but uh, no uh, it was a you know I've great privilege for me to be uh, to be involved and as we've said before you know in our situations Darren we're we're very lucky in that we uh, we get to see the inner sanctum where obviously neither of us were Ever good enough to uh, to compete at those sort of uh, very elite levels? Uh, I know you're a great footballer, but you know not quite that good. Um, and uh, I'll say you tell me, but uh, you know you're very privileged to be there around these uh, these great athletes at uh, at these times. Not only watch them perform, but uh, you know see how they handle it and get to know it. And uh, yeah, I have no doubt that uh, she handled that situation as well as anyone possibly could have. It was quite uh, quite remarkable, and uh, I yeah utmost admiration for her we we, we caught up a, a while ago and we had a laugh about the the uh, the atlanta tracks we we're actually sitting at a, outside a cafe in, in brighton and we both had tears streaming down our cheeks talking about the the, uh, the tracksuit accident in, incident in, uh, in atlanta and, uh, and then all the uh, funny things that happened at sydney but uh, yeah she's a lovely lovely person she's a very private person um doesn't sort of seek the media at all she does a wonderful job in the indigenous community she looks after sort of four communities up in uh, northern uh, northern australia and spends a lot of time there and uh, obviously got a got a child of her own and uh, you know doesn't uh, doesn't sort of seek to seek the limelight or to capitalize no. on, on the gold medal which were a huge you know career as a speaker or a media or someone but that that's not her um she just as a private person and uh and you know you can only admire that oh she's one of our greats and and uh yeah i think we've we've um we're very lucky to have her that's for sure um uh, you mentioned some of the pressure um situations uh, another one in which um you were you were sort of uh, fascinated or an interested onlooker. There's a, there's a couple that come to mind when I talk about pressure and stress. But um, in terms of sporting events, um, give me another one in your your many history. The, the probably and I've actually had a couple of people speak to me about it. Is the Phil Hughes um, yeah. scenario of which you were front and centre, and we, we were lucky to have you front and centre. For those who don't know, just give a because I know you love to talk, Doc, but just give us a, um, a three-minute um, background, firstly, on what happened, for those who don't know, and, and secondly, how the pressure of that next test match, which must have been immense. Yeah, look, I think most uh, most listeners would know that the Phil Hughes story. Phil was an Australian uh, test cricketer who was uh, playing cricket at the SCG and did a Shield Estate match, match and was hit in the neck and basically uh, was rendered uh, unconscious by the, by the hit. And uh, um, subsequently, uh, two days later, died. Uh, he spent those two days in hospital. They tried surgery and uh, the damage was too, too severe. Um, and, you know, incredibly sad story that uh, has been related many times. Um, my role was, I was the Australian cricket team doctor at the time. I was actually in Melbourne at the time. We were, had a few days break between, I think, a one-day series and the test matches. We were due to all get together the next week for the start of the test matches. And uh, I remember seeing a message on my phone from my son who was in New York, I think, saying, you know, what's happened to Phil Hughes? Looks bad. And, you know, I'd been in a meeting or something like that and I sort of uh, quickly found out what had happened and sort of uh, 
some reason I just jumped in the car and, and drove to the airport and jumped on a plane and went to Sydney and and, uh, and just to try and help out and uh, spent the next couple of days sort of coordinating uh, everything, the, the fam- supporting the family and supporting the players and uh, trying to help out where, where I could. But the interesting thing in, in relation to your question was uh, what happened afterwards and uh, obviously uh, we... Uh, all the players got together in Sydney and then we decided well, we couldn't possibly play the test match, which was a few days due to start a few days later, test match against India. And uh, so we, we, we said we can't play, or the players said we can't play the test match at least until the funeral, which was going to be the following week. And um, so the whole, uh, they, so they postponed the test match, changed it from Brisbane to Adelaide. So the whole team, uh, all the staff, and so we went up to the funeral uh, in Phil's uh Phil's hometown, and we all uh, incredibly emotional day, incredible day. And uh, for these young men, I mean, it was such a. Sh- I mean, most of them had, had never, you know, didn't know anyone who died, let alone sure. you know, someone that they were friends with. And Phil was was probably the most popular player in the, in the whole of cricket in Australia. So, I mean, they always say that of the, of the dead, but you know, he really was. If you had a had a survey or you know, vote as to who was their most loved cricketer in the country, and by the other cricketers, it would be uh, it would be Hugh, as we call him, or, uh, or Phil. Phil and um so it was really tough for those guys and the funeral was just uh, yeah just uh, an incredibly yeah. sad uh, occasion and uh, michael clark the, the australian captain made that uh, amazing speech and um it was nationally televised and the prime minister was there i mean it was you know it really shook the whole nation like no other sporting uh, event i don't think it was quite remarkable here and then you know everyone put their the bats outside their uh, their yep. front doors as a tribute and, and so on but so the interesting thing for from uh, from a performance point of view, was that we then had to play a test match in uh, in Adelaide. So the day after the funeral, we flew from from uh, the funeral directly to to Adelaide, and I think the test match was due to start maybe on Wednesday. I think we got in on the Friday or the Saturday. Anyway, the first day, uh, Darren Lehman, the coach, decided we'd have it a sort of a, a more relaxed training session. So not at the Adelaide Oval where all the media would be and, and you know, the sort of serious thing. We just went to a, an oval uh, not, uh, not too far away where we, we just had a, a sort of a low-key net session. And uh, I remember thinking, you know, this is going to be interesting, you know, because uh, these guys have just seen footage and a number of them were actually there when it happened. Uh um, quite close to, uh, you know, Brad Haddon was wicketkeeping and, uh, and, and, you know, the others were all very close to it. And um, I remember thinking, how is this going to go? And it did not go well. Uh, some of the guys just got to the crease and said, no, nah, can't do it. Some of them faced a couple of balls, you know, very medium, medium pace, uh, innocuous yeah. balls and just walked out of the, walked out of the nets. And I remember wow. thinking, Jesus, we're in big trouble here. You know, we've got to play this test match with uh, the Indians who were right up for it and had some fast bowlers, you know, three or four days later. And uh, well, there's just no way we're going, to be, uh, we're going to be in any sort of fit state. So subsequent two or three days training got, got a bit better. Um, you know, each day was, was better and, and the guys seemed, uh, seemed, you know, to sort of improve, but they were still really raw uh, emotionally. It was very hard. And then, so then the test match, and of course, you know, prior to the start of the game, they they show this lovely tribute to Phil Hughes. So the two teams wow. are lined up on the middle of the ground. You know, everywhere around the ground are these uh, these uh, tributes to to Phil. His his num his test number is sort of etched on the uh, on the on the grass uh, in front of the grandstand, and um, you know, it, it was just everywhere. 
And so there's this tribute um, as the teams are really about to start. They line up before the game. We were batting, so, you know, the openers had their pads on and so on. And um, and I'm watching the, the players, and they're, they're basically all crying. And I'm thinking, you know, we're going to have to go out, you know, these batsmen are going to go out to go out and face these Indian fast bowlers now, and 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 they've got tears in their eyes, you know. And you think, well, this is just, you know, this is not going to be good. Um, and yet, you know, to to the uh, the players' credit, uh, you know, they they dedicated that match to to Philip, and uh, and interestingly, in in this in the Australian first innings, the three players who were probably closest. To uh, to Phil, who were David Warner, Steve Smith, and Michael Clark, all made centuries. Yeah. Now they're probably our three best batsmen, so it, you know, it's not that much of a shot. But with Michael Clark, there was no way he was not going to win a uh, not going to make a century. I mean, he was he was Phil Hughes' big brother. They were uh, they were really close, and uh, he was amazing during the whole uh, hospital thing. He was incredible. Oh, that's another story, but. Yeah, he was absolutely determined to make a century. And uh, so it was incredible, as it turned out, that these guys all did well. Every time the, the score was at 408, which was uh, Phil's number, or uh, 67, which was the, the number he was on when he when he uh, was hit and so on. So all was incredibly emotional. Um, and then on the final day, it looked like it was petering out to a draw. And then all of a sudden, Nathan Lyon uh, turned it on and uh, bowled us to victory, a very unexpected sort of quick victory. And uh, the celebrations were were incredible, and uh, I think people felt that that was, you know, that really wanted for uh, wanted for Husey. And then in, the cricket team has this wonderful uh, tradition, as most people know, of singing the song. And you you know you sit around after you win and uh, have a few drinks and, uh, and and talk rubbish for a few hours, and then you go out and and sing the song. And um, so normally we would either do it in the rooms or go out and onto the uh, form a circle around the pitch. But what we did this time was we went out on the ground and formed a circle around the 408 that was uh, written on the grass and uh, and sang, sang the song uh, around that 408. And that was uh, the most emotional thing I think I've ever experienced in, in sport. But but getting back to the, the stress thing, I mean, the, the, the way the guys cope with that was quite remarkable it must have been incredibly difficult uh, for them and i know they're all totally emotionally exhausted after that uh, that test match but uh, credit to them for the way they uh, they handle it much better than i thought uh, i thought they would so that's my uh, stress story what what about uh, what a couple from you Berjo? i guess i'll go to successes and failures um it's certainly the 2007 grand final um, which you laugh about a lot um, <laughs> when Port Adelaide lost to Geelong as part of the Port Adelaide team. We, we've spoken about this in the podcast, but probably... You, you I mentioned... just remind them, you, you didn't just lose, Darren. Uh, you yes, lost by the biggest losing margin in history, yes. So I I felt, as I mentioned on the... probably mentioned on the podcast uh, earlier, I felt as if that occasion got too big for some of players. Uh, including myself, probably. Uh, not that I could influence the result at all, but I, I had a few scenarios up my sleeve. Uh, if if this happened, then do that. If that happened, then do this. And and I'm so I'm certainly not <laughs> saying it's all the players' fault or anything like that. But I just looked around and thought um, that feeling in the dressing room was that 
we've done really well to get there, but perhaps, um, yeah, we were going out to a Red Hot Geelong team um, who are overdue. Um, but I, I felt that the pressure got to not everybody, but some of those players. Um, the World Cup, I remember... So I just, be, uh, just before you finish, I mean, what, what would you do differently? You know, what could you have done differently, do you think? Yeah, I try and relax the players more. Um, I remember uh, when we were, I looked back in the tunnel as we were going out and uh, I thought, or my recollection at the time, and this is, please, this is no disrespect to the players that were there, that some of those players did an incredible job throughout the whole season. Um, but I, I thought I looked and, and I saw the whole squad just a little bit, um, uh, yeah, not, not scared, but... But I hadn't seen that look in their eyes in the previous, you know, even finals and elimination finals when, when it was all or nothing in those games as well. Um, and so I thought that I could have, who knows what would have happened, Brookie. Maybe the first five minutes wouldn't have been as bad or who would know. But um, I, I thought I could relax the players because there's no doubt that that group of players played better when they were relaxed and confident. And I thought, yeah, maybe I could have changed a little bit. Um what, with one of your uh, great jokes or something like that? One of my very unhumorous jokes, and I would be very would have been very happy for them to laugh at me and not with me uh, if, it, if it got the result. Um, I think other times in pressure, I've seen um, yeah, when when uh, we were working for Liverpool and we won the Carling Cup final and in the penalty shootout, I saw players respond. Uh, obviously, I won't go into names, but players respond really, really well. And really, really poorly in in that penalty shootout. Uh, ultimately, we won, so uh, it was great. Um, but uh, I also in the World Cup uh, in 2010, our first game was against Germany. Obviously, they were heavily favourites, uh, heavily favoured to absolutely smash us, which is what happened. Um, in the room beforehand, um, yeah, I, th- I thought that the players were really up for it, um, and I thought that. Uh, yeah, they were uh, ready for battle. As it turned out, you know, within you know, we've been through this within half an hour. But what was really pleasing is in the subsequent games, the players handled the pressure really, really well, um, and there was a lot of pressure on on their performance. Do you think? My question to you, I guess, is you know, you've been in Australian cricket dressing rooms, Ashes tests, all those sorts of things when players are going out to bat or going out to. I remember at a, at a cricket conference, and this will please that some of the sports, uh, academic sports scientists out there, one of my very first cricket conferences, so this is going back, it was in Adelaide when the cricket centre was in Adelaide. Um, so it's going back a while, Brookie, probably 20-odd years, 22, yeah. 23 years. And um, uh, flew down there, was was uh, so excited just to get an invite to attend. And... Um, the study that was being presented, I couldn't even tell you by whom, was that uh, when the one of the Australian opening batsmen at the time was put on a heart rate monitor in a Sheffield Shield and they're going out to face, um, uh, I don't know who it was, someone very quick. I think it was Matthew Hayden facing Glenn McGrath in a Sheffield Shield match and uh, Hayden's heart rate was 162 so it probably wasn't Hayden because you tell me he's quite relaxed. And the practitioner at the time delivering the speech said, so what we did in the nets all that off-season is we got the players to run half-pitch singles and half-pitch, uh, you know, lengths, repeat efforts, repeat sprints. 
to get their heart rate up to 150, 160 before facing a ball. So they could get that experience. And, and I felt they completely missed the point. Obviously, there's a exercise-induced heart rate and there's a stress-induced heart rate. Um, without going into the massive flaws in that study, players walking out to the crease and their heart rate's 160. Could you tell the players that would handle it well and that would hand, not particularly handle it well? No, look, it was... You really only knew because from experience who handle it well and so on. I mean, I, th I think it's very hard to judge people on the day. It, it's it's like before a football match, you know, you have a good day or a bad day and people say, oh, could you pick that in the rooms beforehand? And, and most times you, you can't. And I think with individuals, everyone displays stress differently. Um, there are some who, you know, who you can see it obvious, some who hide it very well. I mean, obviously everyone, I think, you know, particularly batsmen when they're going out to bat, it's a pretty nerve-wracking uh, event. Um, you know, you're at Lords and you have to sort of uh, walk down the stairs and walk through the uh, the long room and uh, walk through the members out to, out through the gate and that long walk out to the, the centre. I mean, it's, uh, you know, if you're trying to increase the stress on someone, that's a pretty good way to, uh, to do it, I'd have thought. But... Um, uh, you know, it is hard to uh, to tell. People have their, their routines and uh, obviously, you know, you don't get to that sort of level, I guess, unless you handle it pretty well. Um, but uh, and yeah, some, I, are better, I, some are better than others. You know? I remember talking to Brett Holman, who's, a, you know, a little known in outside of Australia, but uh, a, an outstanding player. Australian um, soccer player, footballer, who's played in the Premier League and all around the world. And he scored two goals in the 2010 World Cup when others um, didn't do as well. And I remember saying to him, what makes you handle it better than football? I've been doing it all my life. That's all it is. And I think one of our jobs as part of the ancillary staff is to try and, uh, and sometimes convince, but try and put things into a little bit of perspective. Because... Essentially, someone having a penalty shot, someone walking out to bat, you just described someone walking through the long room and seeing all the names and getting all those, you know, fantastically modern English cricketers watching, you know, cricket lovers watching and clapping as you're walking out. Um, you're just walking out to bat like you've done a thousand times before. And by the way, since you've been five, this is all you've wanted to do. So imagine wasting that moment because you were too stressed because you let the pressure all you're doing is walking out to bat you as a person are not going to be defined by this moment you're just walking out to bat you know and i think i think that that was one of the things that brett holman he'll forget having this conversation with me but that was one of the things that do, yeah. yeah exactly uh, one of the things that i just thought it's all it is he's just playing a game of soccer yeah, look, it's great if you can do that, um, uh, but it's very... I know, uh, getting back to Cathy Freeman, I know uh, Team Freeman, as they used to call themselves, used to uh, imagine that it was the school sports. You know, you were running in your school sports rather than running a world championship at Olympic Games, and they'd, they'd refer to it as the school sports, and, you know, they would never refer to it as uh, as the Olympics or the world championships and so on, you know, and, uh, you know, they talk about the sports. <laughs> so, uh, that was their way yep. of, uh, of you know, saying, hey, exactly what you said. This is just a running race. You know, it's who runs fastest. And, Can you uh, train it? Because we're running out of time. Can you train it, yeah, Brookie? Yeah, and we're, neither well, of us are psychologists, so no, please no, forgive us for stepping on their toes. <laughs> but can yeah, you train look, it? I, I think you can get better at it, certainly. Um, I think some people just naturally have it. 
Um, but I think you can get better. I mean, there are lots of examples, I think, of uh, uh, in cricket and, and in other sports, you know, of, uh, of people who were designated as chokers, you know, or that, that, mm-hmm. that terrible terminology, um, yep. who, uh, who, you know, seemingly overcame that. Maybe they just got better, you know, and they started to win more. You know, it's hard to know. But, um, you know, there are whole teams. I mean, the All Blacks were a classic, you know. They, they sort of won God knows how many World Cups but didn't. You know, they were perceived as not coping with pressure and so on. And then they eventually won, won a couple. Well, was that because they had a better team or did they get better at uh, coping with the stress? And probably a bit of both. So, uh, yeah, I think you can improve it. Um, first of all, you've got to acknowledge it's a problem. And then, uh, and then, secondly, you've got to be willing to sort of uh, to work with uh, with people to improve it. And uh, I think that's a great challenge for uh, for psychologists in, in particular uh, uh, to help people through those uh, those moments. A lot of it is also confidence. You know, if you're sort of going well, if you're playing well, and you know, you can you can uh, you have confidence that you can go out there and uh, and and beat anyone. You know, but if in particular if you're down on confidence, you know that's when I think you get uh, you get very nervous and 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 stressed and, and apprehensive because you you don't have that inbuilt sort of uh, confidence. You know that that Kathy Freeman had. You know she knew she was better than all those other runners in the field. She'd beaten them all. You know none of them had beaten her. You know she knew that she just had to get out there and run and and she'd be okay. You know uh, that's you know, it sounds simple, but uh, I think that's got a fair bit to do with it. Um, I think you know, also I, the the Travis Boke example when he was on our podcast recently and he said he, he wrote down what he did during the week and so he knew that if he ticked off those things during the week that uh, he was as prepared as he could be now of course there might be a shot on goal and um, you know that you might miss or things like that but in terms of taking care of the things that you can control um, and, and that's got to put you in a better frame of mind, I would think, going into a game than having those doubts about, did I do this? Did I do enough recovery? Did I do that? Or you know, have I prepared well enough? I think it's like anything. If you're going into an exam or you're going into an interview and, and you're not as, you know you're not as well prepared as you should be, you're naturally more stressed and more nervous. You know, if you go in, I don't think I ever went into an exam feeling I was totally on top of it, but, uh, you know, if you're a t- giving a talk or, <laughs> or something like that, I mean, you know, I think that's, uh, I think you're right. And uh, and I think those who haven't listened to the Travis Boke uh, podcast, I'm not, I'm not just pushing our podcast, but it was absolutely fascinating. I thought it was one of the, the most delightful uh, interviews with a with a uh, an elite athlete that I've that I've ever heard, and uh, he was really good on on that. So I would recommend that uh, if people get a chance to listen to that, they they should. Uh, fortunately, we don't touch in that one, so uh, he does most of the talking. So it's much more enjoyable. Well, I, I don't want to preempt things, but one of the, one of the fascinating upcoming podcasts uh, um, that I'm certainly look for looking forward to is to a, a big wave. Uh, writer whose name will remain nameless <laughs> uh, at the moment, but um, yeah, he's agreed to come on and, and talking to him about uh, stress and nervousness um, will probably answer some of the questions that you and I have raised uh, on here because um, that's a whole different level when your life is actually on the line. Um, but that's probably as, as good a time as any to wrap it up because we've gone a little bit over because uh, the, the topic uh, and, and your, your fantastic insight into, into what happened 20 years ago. Yeah, tw- doesn't, uh, yeah 20 years ago. Eh? It's amazing, isn't it? What were you doing then? Uh, uh, watching, um, I'd had, because I was living in an apartment with a good mate of mine and um, uh, as you can imagine, we had about 30 requests uh, for people to come and uh, crash with us. 
Um, and so we had about five mates from Adelaide um, who were crashing on our pub and we all went into the big screen in Darling Harbour to watch. Yeah, uh, so it was amazing, absolutely amazing. It's been voted by, uh, you know, by people as Australia's greatest sporting moment and uh, I hope we've been able to give you some sort of uh, insight into uh, what was certainly just an incredible night of sport 20 years ago today. Thank you. Thanks, Doc. What a legend. What a champion.